In this episode, we're talking about failure. Yeah, I bet you weren't expecting that in a podcast about Tom Brady. But there was a stretch where Tom and the Pats were kind of failures. After a streak of three championships in four years, the Patriots endured a nine-season drought from 2005 to 2014. No Super Bowl titles. And when you're a fan base that's become used to winning, okay, fine, even a little entitled, that qualifies as a drought. It was like, what happened to the Pats? Would we ever see a title again? Were we, once again, I mean, I can barely say the word, losers. And rock bottom for this time period felt like it was Super Bowl 46, Patriots versus Giants in 2012. Rich Ornberger was an offensive lineman on that team, and at first he felt pretty good. I mean, their quarterback was Tom Brady, after all. Tom is... uh, How could I describe Tom? Tom is the ultimate competitor. His expectation for himself is perfection, and he tries to get as near to it as possible. The game started, and right away, things went badly. On his very first play of the game, Tom tried to throw the ball away out of the end zone and got a penalty for intentional grounding, resulting in a safety of all things. And it didn't really get better from there. I remember feeling sick to my stomach while I was watching. Were we really going to lose to the Giants again? Somehow, though, the Pats had a lead in the fourth quarter before they saw it all slip away in part because of a tragic, completely out-of-character misconnection between Tom and his BFF, Wes Welker. Some pundits were unforgiving. First and foremost, I blame Tom Brady. Ornberger handled the failure in a way that I think most of us would. He obsessed over it. You know, you have those moments that you replay in your mind and you think about all the time. And there were a couple of those moments in that game where it's just like, wow, that really that really happened. <laughs> and and uh, there's no going back and changing it. Now retired, Ornberger has the dubious distinction of playing for the Pats during their years of dominance, a.k.a. the Brady-Belichick years, but having no Super Bowl rings to show for it. I had to get used to correcting people when they would introduce me sometimes onto their radio programs. As, uh, you know, former New England Patriots Super Bowl champion Rich Ornberger joining us, I'd be like, well, we're one of the almost. I'm Gotham Chopra from Religion of Sports and ESPN+. Plus. This is Man in the Arena, a 10-part companion podcast to the docuseries of the same name. Here, we're looking at Tom Brady through the eyes of players and coaches, fans and haters, people whose dreams he's either ruined or made come true, including me. Each episode looks at Tom's impact inside and outside the arena, using sports to explore bigger questions about the world and ourselves. Episode 5, Failure. Three, two, one, let's go! What does failure really mean? Especially for high achievers, those who want to leave a mark on the world, those who take big risks and play in the big games. For them, is failure an inevitable part of the process? In other words, if you've never really failed at something... Does that actually make you a failure? Coming up. Welcome back. 
Now, let's be clear, making the playoffs at all would be seen as a success for a lot of NFL teams. So the Patriots during those drought years were still a really good football team. You know, you got we got to keep this in context. And in and, and New England, people don't want to do it, but nationally, it has to be kept in context. That's reporter Michael Hawley. We called him up to give us a little reality check. The standards were so high and so unreachable for most teams that you can't even say it's disappointment. Yeah, those guys who didn't win are disappointed, but look at it in the context of 31 other teams. Like the Browns have never played in the Super Bowl. The Lions last won a championship in 1957. The Titans have never won it. The Jaguars have never been. The Chargers have never won it. Over those years in the wilderness, the Patriots were still racking up accomplishments that like Browns or Lions or Jaguars fans can only dream about. Between 05 and 14, the Patriots won the division every year that Tom was healthy. They won like nine total postseason games, including two AFC championships. Tom won league MVP twice. Belichick, he won coach of the year, also twice. And they made history. But it wasn't enough. Do you understand that there used to be a 16-0 banner in Gillette Stadium, and they took it down out of shame? The organization was ashamed to have a banner touting a 16-0 season that has never been done in NFL history, that wasn't enough because of the postscript. And then what happened? Well, okay, you went and you, and you lost the Super Bowl, so they're embarrassed by that. Winning the big one became the expectation because of our early successes. Those made the team the gold standard for everyone else, too. Rich Orenberger says this was true even in his hometown of East Meadow, New York, where he played high school football in the early 2000s. The Patriots were the only team anybody talked about in, uh, you know, for the next decade. <laughs> it was just insane. And, and when they started winning multiple Super Bowls, when it was 2001, and then 03, 04, two in a row, and then, you know, that undefeated season, I was just enamored. Rich didn't just admire the Patriots. He wanted to be a Patriot. And I remember looking at the back of the jerseys, like, you know, Dan Copen and uh, Russ Hochstein. A couple of German last names. Ornberger would fit in real nice there. Ornberger went on to play left guard at Penn State. And then on NFL draft day, the Pats took him in the fourth round. When I got the phone call from Mr. Kraft and Coach Belichick, next to marrying my wife and the birth of my two sons... That's the happiest day of my life. Once he had his own German last name on a Patriots jersey, Ornberger quickly learned that the uniform came with a culture where the best was always expected of everyone. The expectations were insanely high. You realize how hard you have to work and to imagine doing that for a large portion of your adult life. Like I was looking around the room and there were plenty of eight-year pros and nine-year pros and 10-year pros in that, that team meeting room. And you look at Tom, and he had been doing it at that point for nearly a decade. There's never, a, oh, yeah, you know what? We missed that play at practice, but we'll get it during the game. No, no, no. He would stop the play sometimes in the middle of the play, and he would want it done all over again. And it was, it was just like nothing I've ever been involved in before. And it isn't easy to play there. So for context, Ornberger's first year with the team was 2009. 
That's two years after their first Super Bowl loss to the Giants, the one that ruined their perfect season and my life. I'm kidding. Sort of, not really. So anyway, they made the playoffs, Ornberger's first season and the next, but fizzled out both times. One and done to the Ravens and then the Jets. Yes, you heard me right. The fucking Jets. As far as the organization and me and the rest of the fan base was concerned, failures. And not just the fans. Reporter Michael Hawley says the team felt that way too. There were conversations that that used to happen in the Patriots cafeteria where guys who were a part of those three championship teams would sit around and talk and say, you know what? We should have five before they had actually had five. We should have five Super Bowls. We should have six. And then in January of 2012, it looked like things were back on track. After the Pats beat the Ravens in the AFC Championship. Even though he was on the injured reserve list by then, Ornberger was still fully invested in the team's chances. And the confetti is raining down and we're hoisting an AFC championship trophy and I'm hugging my teammates and I'm crying on the field and it's just complete mayhem. Beating the Ravens felt like it had to mean something. It had to mean a Super Bowl win. Except, the Giants. That Super Bowl ended up like a very shitty kind of deja vu. After the game, I was crushed, devastated. But that was just me as a fan. Ornberger felt the same way, but well, probably worse. If you ever let it sit for a second in your mind, the fact that you were a few plays away from being a Super Bowl champion, the bottom of your stomach fell out. Like you just, you, it just gutted you. You know, for the rest of my life, I'll be able to say I, I was at a Super Bowl. I'll be able to say uh, I'm an AFC champion, but I don't get to say I'm a Super Bowl champ. So what happens next? How do you move on from something like that? We found someone studying this very concept. Xiaodong Lin Siegler is a psychology professor at Teachers College, Columbia University, my alma mater, by the way, and she's the founding director of the Education for Persistence and Innovation Center, otherwise known appropriately as the EPIC Center. That's right. Epic fails. We're trying to understand the science behind people's ability to come back from a failure to achieve big time in their lives. And a failure has been stigmatized in schooling and a society and being associated as losers. But on the other hand, we discover that the biggest achievers usually have overcome the biggest and most severe failures before they have achieved. After the break, the upside of falling short. Welcome back. Xiaodong Lin Siegler has interviewed a lot of failures, many of whom are also the greatest sports figures of our time. And that may not be a coincidence. Lynn Siegler is trying to find out what makes these folks tick when things don't go their way. Everyone from Olympic gold medalists to NBA champions to groundbreaking scientists and Nobel laureates. Lynn Siegler says that the thing that sets these elite achievers apart from the rest of us is that they don't dwell on the bad, For them, failure is not an ending, 
or as she puts it, they view failure as a turbulence in the journey of a flying from one city to another. And when they fall short, Lynn Siegler says that what makes all the difference is how they respond to that failure. What are you going to make out of it? And what are you going to learn from it? And what do you want to do with it? When Lynn Siegler interviewed world-renowned scientists for her research, she started to see a pattern. Some of the Nobel laureates said, you know, my biggest productive year was the year that my, all my papers were rejected by everybody. A couple years later, these scientists would be at the top of their game, getting their work in major publications, taking on groundbreaking research. And you really do see this pattern all the time. Take Bill Gates. His first company, Trafodata, was a swing and a miss. Now he's one of the richest people on the planet. Stephen King's first book, Carrie, was reportedly rejected like 30 times. It would go on to sell millions of copies and become a blockbuster film. And for the Patriots and Tom, after the drought came two more Super Bowls, not to mention Tom's seventh ring in Tampa. Lynn Siegler says that for the Patriots and for Tom, years of falling short could actually have had an upside. From the scientific perspective, I started to see the bigger you want to achieve and the bigger failures, obstacles you have to overcome. So these years of a drought, not winning anything, actually did him a favor. Lynn Siegler also brought up a quote from one of her colleagues at the Epic Center that basically describes how our brains can process failure almost like a computer handles the data we put into it. He always say that failure is information. So I want to quote that to say that maybe Tom Brady's big success is that during that 10-year drought, he obtained very valuable information that no one else could be able to obtain. So, all the losses that Tom suffered as an NFL quarterback, each of them gave him access to unique information that really he could only get by failing. Each loss offered a lesson, a chance to get better. It's kind of like that famous Thomas Edison quote, about the invention of the light bulb. Edison says that he didn't fail, he simply found thousands of ways not to make a light bulb. Now look, Tom hates to fail. But as an athlete, he knows an essential truth. Failure is inevitable. You don't always win. You can, however, learn from that failure, pick yourself up, and as Tom likes to say, place yourself in the arena again. The arena he's talking about isn't just the football arena. It's referring to a quote from a Teddy Roosevelt speech, Tom's favorite, and the one that this series is actually named for. It's become known as the Man in the Arena speech, and it's been quoted a lot over the years. Theodore Roosevelt once said, the credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood Thank you, JFK. So basically, what's most important is trying. It's just getting in the mix. The man in the arena puts in the work, Roosevelt says. At best, the man in the arena 
will know the triumph of high achievement. And if he fails, Teddy says, at least he fails while daring greatly. So that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. So that's Tom on failure. But what about Rich Ornberger? What lessons did he take from losing? If you're afraid to fail, you're not going to be great at anything. When you're pursuing a career that ultimately lands you in the professional ranks, you realize there were so many people along your path who are way more talented than you were. They were smarter. They were better athletes. They were tougher. But they weren't willing to fail as much as you were. For Rich, in the end, it's about gratitude and perspective. Yeah, here we are really uh, almost exactly 10 years later, right? And I feel great about the experience. I feel thankful that I got to play for such a great organization, that they took a chance on me and drafted me, that they made my dream of being a professional athlete come true. Even though we didn't win the ultimate prize that year, I'm okay with it. Ornberger's career maybe didn't turn out exactly as he had hoped either. I mentioned earlier that he was on the IR for that Super Bowl. Injuries were kind of his undoing. He ultimately only played in the league for about six years, and he never made it back to the big game. But again, he didn't walk away disappointed. My body started breaking down, and I I wasn't going to be able to play anymore, and and that just became my reality. And so I I was pretty... I had a moment where I realized I have a son now. I have a lot to look forward to as a parent. And so, you know, it was it was off onto this new adventure with my life that I, I felt very prepared for. Ornberger says his oldest is just starting to experience failure. You know, there are times where he tries really hard at something. It could be something really simple. I mean, when you're six, life is pretty simple. But those failures, I mean, sometimes they really hurt because sometimes those failures are the biggest failures you ever felt in your life because you're only six years old. So (laughs) how much experience have you had with failure yet? Rich tries to teach his son that failure is not an ending, but a beginning. If you try again, you're accomplishing something. You know, and I don't care if the end result is it didn't work. I don't care if the end result is you couldn't finish it. I don't care if the end result is you didn't get it done to your own satisfaction. The goal is to always try and then to try and then to try and try again. I'm also trying to have my own kid develop a healthy relationship with failing. I mean, that's really why I want him to play sports, not necessarily because I think he's going to be a world-class athlete, the next Tom Brady or Steph Curry or whatever. Although, you know, he could be. No, really, it's because I hope he learns how to lose. I still remember taking him to a Taekwondo tournament when he was like eight or nine. I watched his opponent warm up and I thought like, oh shit, that kid is way better than him. And my son's teacher, he came up to me and my wife in the stands and he said in so many words, look, he's going to get his ass kicked. You're seeing what I'm seeing. He's going to get knocked down. He's going to want to cry. And you know what you're going to do? You're going to sit in the stands and not interfere no matter what, no matter how much you want to. And then he told my son, you're going to get knocked down. 
and you're going to want to quit. And guess what? You're not going to. Because every time you get knocked down, you're going to get back up and you're going to get back into the ring and you're going to get through this. He did and was stronger for it. And that's the man in the arena attitude. This is one of those things that I've learned from spending so much time with Tom over the years. He loses the AFC Championship in 06, comes back and goes 18-0 the following season before losing in the Super Bowl. Loses that Super Bowl, and then his next one, recalibrates and comes back and wins again in 2014. Loses the 2017 Super Bowl to the Eagles, reassesses and comes back the next year to win against the Rams. Okay, look, I'm biased because I'm friends with the guy. But this is what we should be talking about when people call him the GOAT. It's not the seven rings or the ten appearances or all the records, the accolades that go along with it. It's that he fails. He falls short and then says, "Mm, whatever. He gets back up over and over and over again, puts his helmet on, jogs into the arena and takes another shot. That's impressive. That's the shit I teach my kid. Win or lose. Do the work. On our next episode, we look at time itself. Man in the Arena is a religion of sports production in partnership with ESPN+. I'm Gotham Chopra, the host and creator. Our senior producers are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josephine Holtzman of Future Projects. This episode was produced by Cody Nelson. Our story editor is Michael Garofalo. Executive producers are Amit Sankaran and Adam Schlossman. Associate producers Iggy Monda and Megan Coyle. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. This episode was mixed by Merritt Jacob and for ESPN Plus, Brian Lockhart, Senior Vice President, Original Content and ESPN Films, Lindsay Ravenio, Executive Producer, ESPN Plus Originals, Tori Champagne, Producer, ESPN Plus Originals, Julia Lowry-Henderson, Senior Editorial Producer, Riley Bloom, Production Assistant. Lastly, special thanks to Jessica Popovac, Steve Nelson, Carly Peruccio, composer Michael Kramer, PRX, and Row Home Productions. 